Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji, and this is episode 45. Today, we chat with the news director for Global News, Makai Taggart. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. I know it's, it's, uh, you know, you know, the actor Mackay Pfeiffer. Yes. That's how I, I mean, I have no relation. Or I was going to say, was that you were named? After? <laughs> yeah. Nope. I think he might be a year older than me, if that, or I might be a year older than he. Uh, no, Mackay, it's so, Mackay is a family name. It was my great grandmother's maiden name. Okay. Uh, and normally in North America, it's pronounced Mackay, but in Scotland, where it originates, it's Mackay. So that's right. We've always kept the original sort of pronunciation, but. A lot of times, like Peter McKay, the former uh, yes. defense minister, for, for former former foreign affairs minister, he pronounces it Peter McKay. Yeah. But even I've well, excuse me, spoken to him about the name in the past, and he's admitted that my pronunciation, Mackay, is, is actually right correct, one. and his is the wrong one. Now, the, the, the one question that I promised everyone I would ask is, yeah. are you related to Jeremy Taggart? That's so funny. I saw Jeremy last night. No, Sunday night. <laughs> okay. Uh, and no, we're not related. I, really? I used to tell people we were. And he would, I'm sure, deny that. <laughs> I know Jeremy a little bit. Uh, okay. He's very good friends with some mutual friends. All right. And I've hung out with him a bit. And he's a, a, a phenomenal guy. He is. Really nice. Have you had him on your show? I have him, but I'm, gonna, I'm trying you to get him. If I, you need a contact. I would love. I can I can put you in touch. You know, our, the Taggart stick together. Uh, no, <laughs> not, not related, but he, um, I don't know where he grew up, actually. I know he now lives just north of the city with his wife and kids. But okay. uh, yeah, no, no. There aren't many Taggarts out there, but. Uh, the, the few taggarts I do know, I'm not actually related to. No way. <laughs> no way. No, you're, the, no. You're, the, you're the lone wolf. Yeah, lone wolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but thanks for coming in. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Um, you know, just before we started recording, you met uh, George Smitherman here, yeah. who I was talking to before. Um, and I, I guess you guys have known each other. Or yeah, way back. Other, or? I will not. I mean, I, I know him because I work in news and he obviously is a big news figure in the Absolutely, province. So yeah. I know him through that. But I also, uh, my first encounter with him was probably back in, well, I know it was in 1996 because there was a mayoral election on. That's right. I was 13 and he was the campaign manager or at least a senior campaign official for Barbara Hall, who was running for mayor, who would go on, uh, unfortunately, to lose that election. But at the time was mayor. She was the incumbent. She was, yeah. And my, I, I, you remember in grade nine, there's grade nine, take your kids to work day. Yeah. So I asked, my grandmother was, knew Barbara Hall, was friends with her. And I asked my grandmother if she would ask Barbara Hall if I could do take your kids to work day with the mayor, as opposed to my my parents do it with the mayor. And somehow she agreed. And I don't know if she she must not have known this when she said yes, because it was the second last day before the 1996 mayoral election. Yeah. Like probably the busiest day of her entire campaign schedule. And here she had a 13 year old kid tagging along from the minute she got up in the morning to the minute or to her last event. And I remember George Smitherman picked me up in the morning that morning oh, no in way. the car. Yeah. And, yeah. He, and he, and I could tell, like, he was pissed off that I was there because here he is, this <laughs> campaign manager. They've got so many big issues. Why They're head to head. Why is a 13 year old coming along on this day? And I, it was fast. It was actually the coolest day. I still have in my <clears throat> parents' house the agenda that, that they had. And they, she probably made, I don't know, at least 16 stops that day. Probably did about 15 interviews ton of speeches and I was there from through the whole bit of it and it was 
the first time I ever got a peek into Toronto politics or Toronto media or anything. So that day uh, really actually was like met, met, made a huge impact on me. I remember it incredibly well. I remember everywhere we went. Uh, but I also remember George Smitherman being really pissed about it. And so it was, <laughs> it was nice to see him again here, uh, you know, which was it's now that was 96. So that's 20 years ago. Wow. And uh, yeah, George is um, obviously his, you know, his life has taken different turns. Oh, and, yeah. But it's uh, nice to hear that he's doing well and his kids are doing well. Yeah. absolutely. Was that a, a moment for you that said, I want to be here yeah, somewhere, I, whether it was in politics or reporting on the news? Sure. Or something? Yeah, I think it was a moment where you, you thought, wow, it's it's fun to be around the events and the people that the average person is talking about yes. because you sort of, you get that first pass at it, right? You get, you get, you either get to see it first or analyze it first or have a, have a insight into it before anyone else. Yeah. And, um, like I remember that morning we started and did a CBC radio interview and I'd never been, I don't think I'd ever even been in a CBC building at that point. Mm. And, um, here you are, you know, on the radio and what Barbara said that morning was what set the agenda for the day in the, you know, the, the conversation around the election. So it was such an interesting insight into just how the media machine works um, in, in Toronto and Canada and, and in general. So, yeah, that 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 was certainly uh, uh, made. I don't know if it set the set the course for my career, but it certainly impacted it. Yeah. Did you ever think that your grandma would say, yeah, I'll hook you up with Barbara Hall or was it sort of. Well, as I was saying to George just now, I mean, my grandmother was a very uh, well-known person in her neighborhood. She just passed away this summer, but she was born and raised, like physically born in Cabbage Town on Parliament Street. Had this hardware store. store in a store. In the store. She lived above the store. So technically, I'm assuming she was born probably above Upstairs. the store. I think. Or maybe like in aisle two where it the depends if it paint was. Busy, was. Right? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Right. But the, I mean, that would have been back. I think my grandmother was born in the 1930s, like 1930. Three maybe I, I should know this, but uh, so and the, the hardware store actually opened in 1920, so it was it's been around for a long time. And she lived her entire life in this store, and was a huge fixture in Cabbage Town, and saw Cabbage Town uh, ebb and flow, and was you know turned into you know was a really divey neighborhood, yeah. and then a really affluent neighborhood, then another divey neighborhood. Like it was, I think I, I remember hearing her talk and my grandfather talk about the uh, construction of St James Town at Wellesley in Parliament, Whoa. which used to be. Not there, obviously. Yeah. And in the 1970s, it was supposed to be, I think, and I could get my Toronto history wrong here, but St. Jamestown was supposed to be these buildings for up-and-coming young urbanites. And you look at the drawings back in the day when they were proposing these apartments, and it was going to be the most uh, luxurious place to live in, in all of Toronto. And obviously now, fast forward 40 years, mm. it's, it's not that. It's a very no. different reality. And my grandfather, I think, actually fought the construction of St. Jamestown thinking that the neighborhood couldn't sustain that influx of people. And, um, and he, you know, I obviously that went ahead and it, and it really changed the face of cabbage town and, um, and downtown Toronto. But, um, yeah, my, my grandmother, uh, was, was like, you know, the, 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 the unofficial mayor of cabbage town and that part <laughs> of Toronto. So, it, so she, when Barbara Hall, who, uh, lives in cabbage town and has for a long time, when she was running for politics, because she was a school trustee, then a counselor, and then mayor, I think my grandmother was pretty involved in helping support her campaign. Oh, wow. And so I guess when my grandmother made this call and I said, hey, can my 13-year-old uh, grandson come follow you around for a day? Maybe Barbara felt like she couldn't say no. Yeah. Not, no. not to your grandmother. Not to my grandmother. No, no. no. Um, 
Was Barbara Hall also the mayor that wanted to ban the bare naked ladies? Good, good memory. That was actually June Rollins. June Rollins. June, sir, Rollins. June Rollins. Bad was, memory then. No, well, good memory that that happened. Yeah, there was a female <laughs> mayor. Uh, June Rollins was mayor, I think, from 1985 to 1989, something like that. Um, I think, and then after that was Art Eggleton. I think, okay. and 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 yeah, June Rollins. The the bare naked ladies were going to play Nathan Phillips Square, and she said. No way is that band with that name going to play. And I don't. I think they were prevented from playing for at the city at the at city hall. They were. I just for that. Funny. Just that for that one time. One time. And now, obviously, they're huge and legendary. And yeah, <laughs> actually, the first concert I think I ever really saw was with my parents at Harborfront, uh, and it was the Bare Naked Ladies. Wow. Yeah, and they're like a really small venue, like a room probably this size. Yeah. Yeah. With with her big hair, probably back then. It was yeah, big hair, <laughs> and uh, it was when Gordon was released as a cassette. The yellow cassette—is that what they call it? Um, or the was, no, the yellow one was there. The yellow one was there. Was their EP? Their really, demo like their, yeah, something. Their, yeah, that was like really unofficial. Gordon was when they actually—that's right. Just had a bit of street cred, and I don't think it was even there were even CDs out at this point. And it was the it looked like the the bouncy ball or the Pepsi logo. That's it, right. It was like the blue, the, red, and white. Or yeah, something exactly. Like that. Yeah. And it had like uh, Hello City and um, Grade Nine and That's um, great tunes on that album. Yeah, such great. Uh, like if I had a million dollars, obviously, yeah. and uh, Brian Wilson. Like fantastic! I still go back and listen to that album sometimes because I think it, it's like if you listed the fifteen Canadian albums that most Canadians own, I think Gordon would be on that list. That would be up there. Yeah, let's talk about Canadian music for a second here. Um, we we the nation, as some people would say, experienced sort of this um, celebration yeah. of uh, of a band, of, of a career, of, of of a human being. Uh, you know, the tragically hit yeah. just. Uh, you know, finish their tour. Yeah. Um, your thoughts on your thoughts on them as, as as a band. Oh man. And as a Canadian band, and as that you know that last yeah. concert in in Kingston. I was uh, lucky enough to be there for that. Which in was, Kingston. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is really now. Cool. Were you in the yeah. stadium? I was in the stadium. Yeah. You know, there's more than like twelve thousand people have said they're in the stadium. I don't think the stadium holds that many. Yeah, there's six thousand. <laughs> those people are lying because uh, I think it does only hold about six thousand. Uh, yeah, I was like last row, last section, you know, furthest away from the stages you could get, which was actually kind of a cool perspective because the K-Rock Center is so small that you almost want to have that. You, it was neat to be able to see the entire bowl yeah. and see this, you know, for, from the minute they started, there was this massive Canadian flag that got passed around and not for a single second during the concert did the Canadian flag not get passed from person to person. And, and wow. you know, like it was, yeah, that was, you know, that was such an epic night. But it was also, I think it was more, um, the, the, the tour as a whole, like that night, you, you can't have one night that sums up the impact of that band. They came, they, that night certainly came close, but I think, you know, that band, I, I will always remember, the, maybe not the first time I saw the hip, but certainly one of the most um, memorable times was there's a little space above Lee's Palace uh, called the Dance Cave. And okay. it's this uh, place that, like, usually U of T students between the ages like 19 and 21 go and party. It doesn't usually get used for much else. But during the Olympics in 2002 in Salt Lake City, the Tragically Hip played a secret show, or not a secret show, but a show they announced at 9 that morning. And uh, they said the first 200 people in line get to go to this show. And I, a friend of mine, some friends from school called me and were like, hey, this is happening. We got to skip school this day and go down and line up. And I lined up outside uh, Lee's Palace for yeah. from about 9 a.m. until 
seven at night. And it was February. Like it was freezing it was cold. Freezing cold during the Olympics. <laughs> awful, stupid idea. It was not. I was in my. I was in my high school uniform. My like okay. Catholic high school uniform. Waited outside for uh, 10, 11, 12 hours to get in. And what was the worst part is that I was maybe seventeen at the time. Yeah. So I had fake ID. So I didn't even, and it wasn't great fake ID. Like it was pretty fake. Was fake it taped? ID. Like you could no. Pass. It was. It was someone else. It was one of those things where you got okay. to lift up the laminate and change the date, or you could try to find somebody who looked like you and steal their ID. And that's what I did. To a, I don't even know the, remember the guy's name. I remember. I, I memorized it at the time. Now I've forgotten. <laughs> but I waited in line for all this time, and and I've never been more scared in my life when you get up to the bouncer and you're thinking, man, if this guy doesn't believe that's me. Uh, I'm not getting in. And I've wasted these 12 hours and frostbite and all that stuff. So uh, I get up to the front and he looks at it and he looks at me and he looks at it and it looks, he looks at me and he just waves me in. And I, yeah. I've never been more happy. And then, <laughs> and then the hip come on, come on stage. And what they did is they played. We They had a big projector on the stage, 200 yeah. people in the crowd. And they would play a set. And then there'd be a period of hockey. Then they'd play a set. Oh, and no way. Yeah. And so they... And, and, and the intermission they And played. the intermission they played. <laughs> and it was so cool because you're watching Team Canada play in the Olympics. And that, yeah. this is the first year I think they had allowed NHL players back in, in oh, Olympic wow, hockey. Okay. So it had that much more weight to it. Uh, and it was just awesome. It wasn't the gold medal game. It was like a, a semis or something. But it yeah. was still... That was the most memorable time I've ever seen the hip. Was wow. at, at above Lee's Palace, 200 people... Uh, and and so fantastic. That's a that's a great story. Yeah, yeah, and I it was I mean that band like I could go on for hours about their why they impacted Canada so much, but I just think you know there are a few uh, artists or mm-hmm. poets, authors, whomever who can speak to the Canadian experience the way the hip have. Sure. And it's a sad thing that we probably won't hear much from them ever again. All the gourds doing. Yeah. Like two two dates. Two dates. Yeah. Ottawa at the National Arts Center, I think, on yeah. October eighteenth. Yeah. And Toronto, October twenty first at Roy Thompson Hall. Yeah. But not hip music, obviously. It's gonna no. be this new album His Secret new Path. Album. Yeah. yeah. Which is that itself, like if you haven't had a chance yet, go back. There's a guy named uh Ian Adams who was a who is a journalist, he's still alive, he's in his eighties. He, in 1967, he wrote this article for McLean's magazine yeah. about uh, a kid named Charlie. Winack, or I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm messing up his name, but he was a, a young boy, I think about the age of 12, who had been shipped from his home near Kenora, uh, or, or I, it might even actually been in, been in Manitoba, but he was sent to a, a residential school near Kenora, and he hated his life there, as you know, understandably, ripped away from his family, his, his everything he knew, his language, his culture, placed in this residential school, and after a year or so there. Some friends, along with some friends, he broke out and walked, tried to walk back to his home, which was 400 kilometers away. And at a certain point, he died. He, you know, it was, it was in the middle of winter or in the or middle of the inclement weather, and he froze to death. And he was only found uh, a day or so later uh, dead next to train tracks by a CN rail worker. And this article that you can actually find online, written by Ian Adams and McLean's, is so powerful. Uh, it's so simple, but so powerful, and it gives you such a personal insight into the terror of residential schools and, and that era in our history. And Gord Downey, I, I guess, according to him, read this article. Uh, his brother Mike turned him on to it. Yeah. Read the article years back, and and this album is inspired by that. And the reason that I think it's called Secret Path is because that's what the kids had just outside this residential school property near Kenora, yeah. they had this path they would take that would get them to the CN rail line. Wow. And they 
referred to it as the secret path. So that, yeah, that, that album, which I think comes out in, um, on October 18th is going to be, uh, that's going to be a huge, really, seller. really sell- a big seller. And also just a big, like, it's really, I think, interesting that Gord Downey is using this platform at the, what sadly is probably going to be sure. the end of his life yeah. to bring attention to an issue that Canadians, all of us do a bad job of, of, uh, of um, paying attention to, yeah, and here, you know, one of the last things he's going to do uh, with his notoriety and his fame is is shed light on this uh, really tragic chapter in Canadian history. Why? Why have? Why has Canada messed up this this I issue? Mean, this um, I don't know what you call it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Some people call it like a portfolio or a file or whatever. You know, I think it's uh, it's more than much more than that. Um, I don't know why, you know, and I think because the vast majority of Canadians live far from it. You know, the vast majority of Canadians live in cities. Live in the big cities. Live in the big cities. What is it? 80% of Canadians live in within two hours of the U.S. border. 80% of Canadians also live in that Windsor-Quebec City corridor where you're not living, you know, um, there a lot of these communities and these people who who are are, uh, facing these issues. It's not something you see on a regular basis, so it's easy to ignore. You know, as a kid growing up in downtown Toronto, I didn't have any Native friends. Yeah. I didn't I didn't really know anything about Native culture other than what you learn in grade 10 history. Yeah. And and um, and so you forget, and it's compartmentalized. You're like, you, you're told that it was a chapter that is now closed and, and until you get older, and then you start to realize, uh, oh, there's a lot more here. And I think media, like I, you know, I work for one of the country's biggest news outlets, and, and yet I will, I'll, I'll you know, uh, admit that we don't do enough to tell those stories well. Hmm. You know, we don't, the mainstream media in Canada um, doesn't really, we try sometimes and, yeah. we, and we make efforts and part of it is the audience doesn't engage with those stories as much as maybe they should and, and mainstream media doesn't maybe strive to tell those stories as well as they could. But um, I think it's easy when issues are out of sight, out of mind, uh, and when people just look a little different, it's easy to, to yeah. uh, slough it off to something that just doesn't impact you or that something, it's something you can't do anything about. You said something really important there, I think, um, where, you know, you said, you know, maybe the media doesn't talk about or report on it because it doesn't engage mm-hmm, an with, with, with an audience. And I'm wondering if that, I'm wondering if, and maybe I'm seeing this, you know, after, you know, being really uh, a big fan of the series newsroom. Yeah. You know, where it was, you know, this is an important story. We have to tell this important story rather than um, this is a story that we think are going to get ratings. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm wondering whether or not today's media, with there being massive competition, you know, between let's call it legacy media versus new media sure you know being led by the huffington post and the vice yeah and so on and so forth um whether there's that distraction i would call it in terms of we need to focus on stories to compete yeah like clickbait yeah i think that's really interesting and i think that's why uh you know at a certain point as a you know global television which is not really global television anymore it's global news and we have uh, a a uh, as important a presence online as we do on TV, even though our heritage and our brand is built on television, we are now not only competing against CTV and CBC and, and City TV, but we're competing against 
as you say, Vice and Huffington Post yeah. and BuzzFeed and news outlets that don't even exist in Canada, yeah. but that people access through the internet, which is a, a great equalizer. And I think if you if you solely leave it up to Facebook algorithms and um, yeah. and Twitter feeds to aggregate your news, you're only going to be informed of the stories that matter to you and to the, the people in your friend group. Yeah. And which is why I think those of us who, who um, you know, help program or line up a nightly newscast still have a really influential and important role because we have the opportunity to say, hey, this is a story that you might not have heard of. It might not have been shared a million times by your friends or turned into a funny meme, but it's a story that we think if you give us the time and you and you and you invest in the information we're going to give you, we think it's a story that's actually going to matter and mean something to you. And um we, I think that's why legacy media, as you say, yeah, still has a role because we have a, a bit more of a curation process, whereas BuzzFeed and Huffington Post and some of the new media simply let um, analytics yeah. uh, decide what stories arrive at the top of the page mm-hmm. and what stay there and what never gets touched. So um, it's a balance. Like it's, 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 your, it's your job as a journalist, as a reporter, as a producer to um, say to someone, hey, this is a story you should care about and here's why. And, and if we don't do a good job of it, then yeah. fair enough, people are going to tune out and that's, that's, that's okay. Um, but it's on, it's on us to try and say, hey, give us an hour and we'll give you a snapshot of the world in a way that maybe you haven't seen before or that you maybe in a way you should take the opportunity to see. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you feel that, you know, with what uh, Gord Downey is doing, um, you know, and, and really taking advantage of, you know, his notoriety and saying, look, I'm, I'm going to push this with my last, you know, however months, weeks, yeah. years he's got left. Do you, do you think that, um, you know, publications, online, TV, wherever, are, are going to, I guess, jump on the bandwagon and say, you know what, let's start telling some of these stories at this particular time? Like, are you having those conversations? Yeah, like, oh, we are. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I, I just today I had a conversation about actually the, the guy who I mentioned, Ian Adams. I hope I'm getting his name right, who wrote the article. <laughs> uh, I, as far as I can tell, he's still alive. Yeah. And I think that reaching out to him yeah. and, and, and you know, telling a story of, um, you know, trying to tell this story in a unique way and use that opportunity that Gord Downey's presented. Um, I mean, I don't think... I don't think that the, this album that Gordiani released is going to fix things or, or, or uh, it's not going to necessarily dramatically increase people's engagement in the issue. But I think what it does is it, it does guilt trip people a little bit in thinking, yes. okay, here's a guy who I've rocked out to on my cottage dock or in dorm rooms or uh, you know, in, on road trips for years. And here's a guy who is saying, you need to pay attention to this issue. And when, when I was at that show in Kingston... One of the, uh, that was powerful. very powerful. And one of the few times he kind of really engaged with the audience, aside from through his music, one of the times through his words that he engaged, he, he stopped, he was just him on stage and he pointed up to the prime minister and he said to Trudeau, who was there in the crowd as well, uh, this man, you know, he's a good guy. He's going to do something about this. Yeah. And I think he kind of used his, uh, his celebrity at that point to say, to give some credit to Trudeau, but also say, you know, we I, one of the most powerful things Downey said at that concert was, "We're not the country we think we are. We're not the Canada we think we are." Yeah. And that stuck with me big time because here, you know, here you are listening to hip music, and everyone's like, "Yeah, this is this is our country. This music speaks to us. And yeah, it speaks to our experience." 
And the guy is stopping the middle of the show and saying, yeah, 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 I know you say that about my music and about these issues and, and fine, but we're kidding ourselves a little bit mm. because we're not as much of a team and as much of a unit as we think we are yeah. because we're leaving this group behind. And he pointed to Trudeau and said, you know, this guy's going to do something about it. And I think yeah. now, you know, in, in, in uh, three and a half years or two and a half years when Trudeau's running for election, uh, hopefully someone maybe will, will pull that clip and go to the prime minister and say, hey, Remember that time that Canada's most famous musician yeah. called you out and said, you're going to make a difference on this issue? Yeah. What have you done? Yeah. And, 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 um, he's, he's moved that. He's moved the needle. Yeah. The agenda for yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's easy for us to, you know, look south of the border mm -hmm. at the issues going down there with or without an election happening and, and sort of judge. Yeah. Um, you know, and then sort of ignoring. It's, yeah, it's so true. You know, I think it's kind of like, you know, if you grow up and you're two kids in a family and your room is messy, but your sibling's room is even messier, you're never going to be the one who gets the, the you know, the, the, the criticism from your parents to clean up your room because yeah. your room's not as messy. That doesn't mean your room is clean. No. It just means it's not as messy as the other room. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the same way with Canada and the United States. We very are very quick to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, look at us. We don't have the same racial tension or the same degree of wealth disparity or the same issues in education or we have better economic or better environmental policies and all those things are true mm -hmm. but that doesn't give us a pass and say that we're doing the best we can do yeah and and i think it's sometimes detrimental to our progress and our success being so close to the united states because it's, it gives us an easy out we are yes we are more you know our our uh, literacy rates are higher and and our mat leaves are longer, and yeah. our um, our healthcare, our healthcare is, is better. Yeah. That, but that doesn't mean our healthcare is good. It means it's better it's than the better, United States. Yeah. yeah. So I think that it's a double-edged sword being so close to the U.S. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing to 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 realize. I should say realize because I you know I'm as guilty as anyone. I think mm -hmm. In, as a Canadian, you know, to not know and understand what is happening. So it's it's it's, it's almost embarrassing. You know, to 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 realize that there are communities in Canada where here I complain that I can't get Wi-Fi access. Yeah. That some communities don't have drinking water. Oh my God. You know, it's you know, if you ever get the chance, uh, as and you know, it's not um, everyone's first choice of vacation, but I happened to be a couple months ago with some friends, um, actually on a storm chasing trip oh, down wow. in Middle America. Places that you would never go as a tourist. We we started off in Oklahoma. So this wasn't a work thing. This was no, not a work thing. I don't think I don't think global would, would, would the insurance policy would cover me down there. Uh, though it should. I mean, it's a great, it'd be great to take a crew down there one day. But we, some friend, a, a good buddy of mine, is a huge uh, storm aficionado. He, he he knows weather inside and out, and he's it's he's found his passion in life, and it's storm chasing. It's really it's cool. And he for years has been convincing a couple of us to come down with them. And we finally were able to make it happen this year. And it was, uh, the storm thing was really cool. That, there's no doubt that was a phenomenal part of the trip. But what you're doing is you're driving through parts of the United States. Like we went through Oklahoma, Kansas, and the Texas Panhandle. And these are some down and out places in the, in the, in the Midwest, in Southern Midwest. Places where you drive by homes and you think, this looks, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but I, I've spent quite a bit of time in Africa. There are towns that you, if you just took a little snapshot, you think it would be a a, um, a community in rural Africa. In that, yeah. n not roads that aren't paved, homes that are are 
you know, corrugated kind of uh, siding with, with some tin shacks on top, like just not nice places to live. And this is the United States. Like yeah. this is, this is the land of, of Trump tower and of Beverly Hills and, and of midtown Manhattan. And yet you also have these neighborhoods that are just so deplorable that don't have clean drinking water, maybe don't even have drinking water period. And not only are they subjected to this, this, uh, you know, turbulent weather, but they're also kind of forgotten by, hmm. by the rest of the United States, by the coastal big cities. And, um, and I'm sure those places exist in Canada. Yeah. We don't see them as often because a lot of them don't have road access and they're not, they don't happen to be along, you know, the trans Canada. But I think that the United States, it's, it's amazing when you, when you go to these, to this place and you think, wow, this is the place, this is the place where we get all our media from and all our Hollywood movies. And we think it's, you know, the land of the free. Yeah. And then you think, you, you, when you see what some people are living in, and it's, it's shocking, the disparity. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, I talked or I mentioned Newsroom. Mm-hmm. You ever watch the show? Yeah, every episode, yeah. Is it true? Like, what, what they show on there, is, it, is that the way it is? Uh, I wish. I mean, it'd be, it'd be <laughs> certainly fun to have that kind of, you know, well, maybe not fun, but be entertaining to have that personal drama play out in a newsroom. Uh, Outside of the drama. Scene. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, you get, you know what? Yes, in that what you get in newsrooms, and I, I've only ever really worked in newsrooms. Like since okay. I was a kid, I've, I've always worked in, in radio or television. So um, I don't know what it's like in other, but I imagine like an accounting office, you don't have sort it's of screaming like matches every morning about what story <laughs> should be covered. Like it, it, there's a lot of passion, which is which is fun, but it's also draining. But it's, yeah. you know, so you that passion that people have for stories, that is, I, I think across the board, you'll get that in every newsroom and, and, and the HBO show and, and or not, yeah, it was HBO. Sorkin, uh, you know, kind of encapsulated that really well. Um, and I don't know. I've never worked in the United States, so and I've never mm. worked for a an all news network That's where right. you live and breathe it the way that 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 you know ATN or whatever it was called on on the newsroom yeah. did it. Um, but I I think that 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 kind of that level of engagement, you know, you get people who just they they are hungry, and also like now I'm on the management side at, at Global, and uh, I see. You know, it's difficult because you're you're trying to manage or work with people who are for a living told to say no to authority. Like when authority tells them something, yeah. you're supposed to say, well, that's bullshit and I'm calling you on it. Yeah. And it's difficult in a newsroom when in the morning you say, OK, here's here's the assignments for the day. And then you have a whole room of people be like, no, that's bullshit. And I'm calling <laughs> you on that. And, and, and I've had reporters come to me and say the, the best line in. One of our reporters recently, we were in a meeting and she was upset, rightfully so, probably. And she sort of said, you want me to be a mouse in the newsroom and a lion in the field? And I said, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. She's like, no, you don't get it both ways. I'm either a, a lion in the newsroom and a lion in the field or I'm a mouse both places. So I think they they, they captured that energy really well in that show. Yeah, that's that was a great show. It was a great show. Yeah. I, I don't know why it's sad. It only lasted three seasons. It got a little too schmaltzy. Like the Aaron Sorkin Soap language. Operation. Yeah. Like, did you watch West Wing? I love that show. Oh my god! I love that show so much, but I do think that if it aired today, it wouldn't do very well because yeah. it hmm. no because shows the shows that do well now are really gritty. Are you know fair enough? Right. The West Wing was pretty pretty vanilla, and the newsroom was kind of vanilla as well. For even for a show on HBO, it was kind of soft. And I think people um, and it's just very very dialogue driven. They want they want sex. They, they want, want sex. Their death. A little violence. Yeah. Yeah. And and. Yeah, yeah. and you know, while while the newsroom, you might get that, you might cover those stories. Those types of stories don't usually unfold in a newsroom. Um, um, yeah, that's so true. Which is a good thing. <laughs> and and I think Sorkin is he is he on record of saying he's never going to do TV again? 
Oh, I don't know. I hope not. Because he's done, you know. It's an amazing Like, uh, there was that show called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which he did, which was brief. It was only on for a season or two. I think it was on NBC. And it was about a show kind of akin to Saturday Night Live. Like, it was about a sketch comedy show. It had Bradley Whitford and Amanda Peet and Ed Asner, I think, was on it. And it really, um, it was so good. But the, they say the reason it didn't do well is because it came to life. It was on TV just at the... Uh, uh, onset of the TiVo and PVR era. Oh. And it was before our rating system was able to measure ratings uh, from PVR programs. Okay. And so what happened is it appealed to a certain demographic, maybe a more affluent and more educated demographic, who wouldn't schedule their life around a TV show. So they'd PVR. They'd had the money for a PVR. They'd PVR oh. it. They'd watch it a couple days later. And even though they were watching it and liking it, it wasn't getting recorded in the ratings uh, oh, diaries. It. And so you, you, the show got canceled. And that's kind of Sorkin's um, downfall is that he appeals to this kind of, he super serves this elite, yeah. uh, you know, kind of cerebral part of the population. Yeah. I love his stuff. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, all of these stories that you've covered and maybe mm-hmm. stuff you haven't covered, but mm-hmm. is, is happening sort of in, 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 in the news and yeah. around us. Um, how was it covering the Obama inauguration. That was really cool. That was one of the, the most memorable news events I've, I've been um, privy to. Uh, I went down, I was working in radio at the time at News Talk 1010 and at Astral Radio. Um, and I went down with a team of uh, about six or seven journalists and got to be you know, meters away from the when from President Obama when he was being sworn in, which was wow. so powerful, right? To wow. hear this guy, like, here is a guy taking an oath that will make him in a matter of minutes or seconds, however long the oath takes to read, yeah. the most powerful man in the country or the world, really. The world, yeah. And, and, um, and, and you know, he, four years prior, no one would know who he was. And, and four years later, he's, he's the most powerful man in the world. But the most wild part of that entire experience, aside from, like, that morning, the, the, the security was unlike anything I've ever been around. It was so tight. We had to, months in advance, had to send away for these really intense um, security passes. They did full background checks. We got these hologram passes that were really high tech. You had to show up. The inauguration, uh, President Obama wasn't being sworn in until 11 a.m., but all the journalists had to be there for 3 a.m. if you were going to be on Capitol Hill. You're kidding me. If you were going to be in the, on the portico of Capitol Hill, you had to get there at 3 a.m., so we, and we were, uh, no hotel rooms to be found in, in Washington. So we yeah. stayed in Baltimore. We get up at 1 a.m. We take a van in from Baltimore into D.C. There was like a two or three mile radius around the Capitol that you couldn't get a vehicle in because they had, they had, sure. they had like locked it down. They had checked every sewer grate and everything. So at 1.30 a.m., the van lets us off somewhere in Washington, D.C. We, our crew, lugging all our equipment. Uh, truck through this, the streets of Washington, which are it looks like a zombie apocalypse because there's no one there except the journalists and the and the crews who've been let in at that at that point through the yeah. perimeter. We get to the outside of the Capitol, and it was calling it airport security is underselling. It was like it was un, it was un, unlike anything. Uh, you had to line up. You had to take pretty. And it was in January, right? So you're wearing all like right. snow pants and winter Freaking jackets, cold, yeah. gloves. You took everything off, pretty much, like almost down to your long underwear. Uh, and and you're in line with everyone. Like Katie Kirk was in front of us. Anderson Cooper was behind us. Like it was the creme de la creme of, of you know <laughs> TV news in the United States. But everyone's going through this intense security. Yeah. Once you got in, you weren't allowed into the Capitol, but you were allowed on the on the um, 
you know, big uh, port, not porch, but that's under explain, but the portico, whatever it's called, the big, the area, the, you know, the, the uh, grounds of the, of the uh, um, Capitol building. Yeah. You're on the kind of the, the lookout of it. Are you on the backside? The front, looking, front? looking out on the mall, right? Okay, so you're yeah, looking yeah. down at the, at the pool. Yeah, exactly. The reflecting pools okay. in front of you. Yeah. Exactly. So you get there and it's now we're, when we're through all that, it's maybe 4.30 in the morning. And of course, you're going to have to pee at some point. <laughs> and they, there was there were, they had a they had a bank of of porta potties yeah. uh, built for journalists or for whoever was out there at the time, and you every time anyone went into the porta potty, there was a secret service agent stationed outside the porta potty, and after everyone went into their business, it was some poor guy's job, a guy who was like you know trained like no other security official in the world. He has to go with a flashlight and and do a sweep of the porta potty inside to make sure that no one nothing has been planted. So like the, the 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 level of security was crazy. I felt so bad for that Secret Service guy. But um, then the neat the neatest mo- moment in that entire day was because we got there so early. It was pitch black in Washington, and um, they let average um, spectators in about maybe around five thirty or six a.m. to the mall. There were a million people that they were going to allow onto the mall. Jeez. I think it turned into about a million five, and at about. 7 a.m. because it was January. The sun didn't come up till about 7 a.m. And as the sun starts to rise over the Capitol, all of a sudden, what goes from pitch black starts turning into a million and a half people. And you look out, and there are people as far as the eye can see. And you think about the stories of these people. The day prior, we've been out interviewing people who had descended on Washington for the inauguration. And you're talking to grandmothers and grandfathers, African-Americans, who were born in the United States where they weren't allowed to drink from the same water fountain as a white person. They weren't allowed to go to the same school. They weren't allowed to uh, um, you know, they, 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 they would sit in the same places on a bus. Yeah. And here they are, some odd 70, 80 years later, watching a black man become president of the United States. That moment, seeing that sun come up and seeing those people there who had gathered was the coolest wow. uh, vision or coolest sight, one of the coolest sights I've ever seen. So powerful. The rest of the day was just sort of unfolded and it was yeah. crazy and, you know, but that moment I will always remember of the sun coming up and seeing a million and a half people there and everyone that day was happy. You know, even even Republicans, I think, <laughs> even the staunchest yeah. opposition, I hope, took some comfort in in knowing the United States had, had broken a real color barrier. That yeah, day. yeah. Well, so was was there, like, I don't know how many people show up to inaugurations, but... Is, is the mall packed like that? I think probably. I mean, certainly for uh, the first inauguration of a president. Yeah, uh, fair enough. And yeah. certainly for a president that has such historical impact. Yeah. I don't know what it... I'm, I, like, the United States loves their pomp and circumstance, they right? Do. Like, they, they do it so well. We don't do it nearly as... Like, we, we covered extensively um, Prime Minister Trudeau's inauguration, which I would argue uh, probably compared to any other prime minister in the past, just because of his name recognition and his... Celebrity status. Um, the inauguration was quite. Uh, it's not even called inauguration. I think swearing in is really yeah. what it is. But um, it was it was really quite electric. But it didn't have nearly the same. Did it you was on the, show up at three thirty. No, no, no. It was, the, it was on the grounds of Rideau Hall. It was you know there were some people who had driven in from like maybe like Kingston or it's Toronto. Really just signing a bunch of documents and then yeah, it's like you know the governor general calls people up and it's the, it's the swearing out of the whole cabinet. Like it's right. it's still a very lovely experience. Yeah, um, but it's nothing compared to like you know on the Barack, and, Barack Obama inauguration. I'm looking around and there oh there's Aretha Franklin, there's Beyonce, there's Jay Z, there's Spike Jones, Spike Lee, there's Jeez. there's um, 
you know, uh, well, obviously Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Hillary Clinton, you know, it's, it's, it's everybody, right? Steven yeah. Spielberg was there. Like, Oprah was there. <laughs> you know, Oprah's not turning out for the, for the uh, swearing in of, uh, of, of um, you know, Paul Martin. I can guarantee that. <laughs> yeah, no. Wow. Um, so from one inauguration to one that's mm-hmm. coming up later. Mm-hmm. Well, the election's coming up later. Yeah, so there will be an inauguration eventually. Until, until the year after. Yeah. Um, how did the phenomenon of Donald Trump become? I don't know. I mean, I, I uh, like I remember well watching um, with in our newsroom in, I guess it would have probably been January 2015. It was Donald Trump's that speech that he made where he declared his his intention to run to seek mm-hmm. the Republican nomination, and he did it. Uh, that was the speech he mentioned: Mexicans are rapists and murderers yeah. and all that. And I remember sitting around our newsroom, like all of us were glued to it and laughing our heads off because. You're thinking, wow, this guy, the things he's saying, the ideas he's bringing up, the, the manner in which he, you know, it was like a two-hour speech. It was like a, this, you know, diatribe, verbal diarrhea kind of thing. It didn't seem like anything was planned or written out. Yeah. And you think, wow, this is going to be the shortest candidacy in the president in the history of the presidential uh, run. And, and yet, it hasn't been. Like, you know, you, you, at a certain point, um, you got to start taking the guy very seriously. And I, so I don't know what that what that turning point was where he went from being that kind of joke candidate yeah. to being, um, wow, this guy is, is, is he's a nominee. Now. He's the nominee. And, and I think it's actually, you know, the, the, the closest thing you can compare it to certainly locally is, is, um, Rob Ford and George Smitherman back in, in 2010 when you yeah. had, you had this guy, this counselor who was thought of as being this kind of right wing, uh, lone wolf, uh, kind of, I don't want to say a joke, but he was certainly not taken very seriously a lot of times by mainstream Toronto media. And, and, and I remember there being a certain point in the campaign locally here where amongst other journalists, you started saying, maybe this guy has a chance. Maybe this is actually, maybe we haven't tapped into this feeling and this mood that it clearly exists. And I think that that's probably what happened with Donald Trump, that the, the um, mainstream media and, and those people who are in positions of influence and power who are more removed from what those people in places, like I was mentioning earlier, like rural Kansas. Yeah, yeah. Maybe those people are feeling something that we've been negating and haven't been paying attention to. And um, maybe we are not uh, as plugged in as we thought we were. And I don't know. You know, I think Donald Trump, I think also Donald Trump has been, um, his success has been influenced by the, success of reality television like we mm. love especially americans love watching somewhat of a train wreck or something that is unpredictable and uh we likely like yeah you like to be entertained yeah and yeah. he certainly does a good job of that and um people who aren't typically voters but who are reality tv show watchers yeah maybe are are more interested in watching um an entertainment show like what the presidential campaign has sort of been thus far, then they are interested in watching real issues be debated. So mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, his, his, his success has been twofold. One, it's because he taps into a uh, silent majority who feel really alienated. And two, he also appeals to those people who just like to sit back and watch something really funny unfold on, uh, on, um, in media. But there's a large 
you know, there's there's a silent majority, but then there's also a large number of people. Yeah. You know, essentially, according to the polls, yeah, they're they're essentially tied. Yeah. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So Donald Trump, you know, when they ask, you know, what is your plan? Oh, we're going to do it better. Right. Or we're going to build it higher. Right. Or we're going to make someone else pay for it. Or going to be greater. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Like no substantive plan. Like no. nothing. He, you know, the quote that he's that's going around today, um, because after the, you know, the, the um, disturbing incidents in New York and New Jersey over the weekend yeah, with these, yeah. these bombings or the attempted bombings, Donald Trump says, I've had a plan for ISIS. It's a secret plan. I'm not going to tell you what it is just yet, but it's yeah. a plan. People actually, I think, almost have an easier time believing that or latching onto that than they do a candidate maybe like Hillary Clinton who says, well, here's how we need to, we know this needs to be a, a multi-pronged approach and we need to appeal to our allies and we need to be uh, looking at the economic sanctions that we can impose and we need to be winning the hearts and minds. Like what all, the, all this other kind of political jargon, maybe the average voter just wants to hear, I have a plan. And it's a good plan. And that's all they care. Shit. Right? That's, yeah, it's, it's a little concerning. But but it, I think it, it really speaks to um, the the um, simplicity sometimes that yeah. people like to have information uh, delivered in. It's strange that even even some, some what we would consider smart people are going, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Like I've heard, and I, and there are, and I also think you can't, and I think we did this Unfortunately, during the Rob Ford election, yeah. you, you forget that there are actually like, very smart people out there who who are successful and plugged in and, and yeah. um, influencers who are who are like you know what actually this is kind of the way the way um, things need to be. You need someone who is uh, a no nonsense, uh, you know, going to call bullshit on on issues and on people. And you and and you know I know I've talked to guys and women in Toronto. Who are uh, you would think are more progressive, let's say, but who are who like Donald Trump's directness? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, which and do you think that's why Hillary Hillary Clinton is finding it hard to break through is because she's not speaking in those simple terms? Yeah, I think she also has a lot of baggage too. You know, she's she's been in the spotlight. Um, well, certainly since 1992 when she became first lady, but yeah. even before that, obviously her husband was a governor. And I think she has been, um, she has, you know, there, there are people who don't like her because of either things she said or things her husband has said or, or things that she's done or things she hasn't done. And, and she has a track record that unfortunately, um, she has to run on. Yeah. Donald Trump doesn't have a track record, right? He hasn't, none of what he has done has been needed to be in the in the public good, right? Up until Fair this point, yeah. he's his his, and he'll be the first to say his objective up until this point was to make his his self and his family and his shareholders make make money. Yeah, and and apparently he's done that. You know, some people would 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 call that would, you know call that into question, but apparently he's done that. So he hasn't had to actually have any proof on uh, the work he's done. Whereas Hillary Clinton holding office yeah. for the last uh, better part of the last 12 years, she has had to show that she has um, has actually made an impact and done and followed through and and promises she's made and emails she's written or whatever it is. Yeah. There has to there's some credibility there that That's maybe she's not, you know. That's really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier on, we mentioned, um, you know, Black Lives Matter in, in passing, but I want to yeah. there, there was something in the news today. I think the the. The organizers of the Pride Parade yeah. um, 
apologized. Yeah, they wrote a letter last night. Yeah, can you fill me in on that. What happened? So they wrote a letter. Uh, the the, the um, executive um, board at uh, Pride Toronto, which has gone through some changes recently, because their executive director was effectively, it sounds like, kind of booted out of his role. He resigned, but it sounds like there was some internal politics that led to that. Um, and there's been some conflict in that in that group, and they they published this letter, sort of saying that. Black Lives Matter is an ally of Pride, and they apologize for maybe treating them not like an ally. And I think at Pride, you you know, Pride has become a very different uh, entity in the last ten years than it was prior. It used to be this kind of activist yes. group that yes. fought for change and fought against mainstream and was you know protesting down yeah. Young Street. Now they are this corporate sponsored celebratory. Um, event that everybody in the city and every company in the country wants to get behind. Yeah. And I think there are some people who are aligned with the pride movement who feel like, wait a second, that's not what this is built on. We're built on fighting for change. We're not about waving, you know, big bank banners, uh, yeah. uh, you know, in your face and, and getting a lot of corporate dollars. And so I think we're seeing that kind of infighting uh, spill out and, and it looks as though that activist faction in, at the at Pride Toronto is kind of winning out right now, and and they're the type of people who maybe align very much with the goals of Black Lives Matter Toronto. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how much that story resonates with the average Torontonian right now. I think that it's certainly if you're if you're a member of those either of those communities, you're very engaged. Um, but I don't know until Pride next year happens. I don't think we'll see the true impact of um, what yet last night's letter really means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, until they start saying to a big company, well, you can't march in this parade because your policies don't align with our activist intentions or, or hey, Toronto Police, you can't <clears throat> uh, be a member of this event if you're going to be in uniform and have your guns on you. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's interesting. Um, Colin Kaepernick and what he's been doing down oh, yeah. in the States and... Um, I guess subsequent to that, uh, a number of athletes, yeah, um, you know, have been doing during the the playing of the American national anthem. Yeah, um, what are, what are your thoughts on on what has been happening there, specific to that? I don't know. You know I think it's it's always you're like you're kind of always. I'm always at least uh, somewhat inspired by people who are willing to really stick their neck out. Yeah, and obviously uh, that's what we've seen, and you know you. There are a few things more sacred in the United States than football and the national anthem. Yeah. And when you attack both of those at one time, you're certainly making yourself uh, a target. Um, but he, he, you know, it doesn't seem to matter to him. And then the, we, yeah, there have been other other athletes who have followed along. Um, and I think that it's interesting because we had a, a situation somewhat similar in Canada just uh, two months ago, where there was one of the, the members of the tenors. Who um, yes, at, a, yes. at, at the uh, baseball all star game in California when they were singing the uh, Canadian national anthem? He changed one of the lines to reflect uh, a view, not necessarily in line with Black Lives Matter, but he changed it to something in you know All Lives Matter. And Canadians were really upset about that. Yeah. And I agree that maybe maybe if you've been asked to represent your country in this important role. And you take that opportunity to voice your politics, maybe that's not the right place. Hmm. I do think that was a little different. Something as simple as kneeling during the national anthem is a little different than 
actively changing the words to a, to a national anthem. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's, you got to give some credit to every, you know, to people who are willing to do something in a nonviolent, non, um, combative way yeah. that really speaks to their message. Yeah. Like who, who surprised you the most? Um, I, that's a great question. I'm enjoying this one for sure. Yeah, um, to be honest with you. Um, but I think, wow, who's my favorite? Um, Salt Colt, who is a friend slash, mar- he's, he's a friend. Okay. Uh, full stop. But he's also, um, he's also a, an amazing marketer. Okay. Uh, so the, the um, I don't know if he's the, the founder of uh, the Just for Laughs comedy oh, cool. uh, thing. Uh, they came out yeah. of Montreal, but, or, yeah. or, 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 or the main organizer these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's called one of the best word of mouth marketers that there is. I had a fun time chatting uh, with him. I've enjoyed everyone. There's maybe a handful that have been a challenge yeah. to, like, to you, get through. What's the heart like? When, because you probably know into the first two or three minutes if it's going to be an easy conversation or not. Yeah, yeah. What's the indicator? Like, what, what, what's the sign that? Oh, okay, this is going to be easy to. Well, when I asked you about inauguration, I didn't check the time, but that took ten. That was a ten-minute story that you told. (laughs) You know, that's not necessarily a good thing for. No, um, that is that is amazing because you know. All that my note says here yeah. is inauguration of Barack Obama. Oh, yeah. And then it's up to me to pay attention right. to say, okay, but expand on this, expand right. on that. Sure. You yeah. know, rather than you're telling me a story that starts at, you know, before three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that leads to the right. sun coming up. Sure. Yeah. But that's the best way. To, I mean, that that's always, uh, I think the best way to be prepared for an interview is to kind of be underprepared, right? Yeah. Like, you ever listen to you? I, you probably listen to a lot of podcasts, but do you know Mark Marin? Love Mark Marin. And his interview style is so casual. Yeah. Um, that it's so easy to listen to it because you feel like you're just sitting in on a conversation. Yes. Like, it's not as though. And there, I mean, he, he also sometimes, I find sometimes he'll do a, an interview and then you'll think, oh, but you didn't get to any of the things I wanted to hear that person talk about. Sure, it. sure. But that's just the, you know. The risk you take, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love his style. Yeah. In terms of, they're they're just having a conversation. Yeah, and they're in his in his garage, right? Like yeah. that's the coolest part. Is that yeah. Even when Barack Obama came, they were in his garage. Yeah. yeah. He insisted if we're going to do this, it's got to be in the garage. Mm-hmm. Although he's interviewed people in in, in other locations. Yeah. You know, he's he's interviewed um, Mike Myers in, in his in Mike Myers's New York office. Right. Um, and Lauren Michaels, Lauren Michaels in his yeah, New York office, Saturday Night Live, um, which was kind of cool. Which actually that because, was a nice interview, though. yeah. Because he <laughs> that that if you listen to Mark Maron's podcast, yeah, that his his relationship or his encounter with Lauren Michaels early in his career influenced so much of the rest of his life that to hear Mark Maron go back to that place where that initial uh, you know audition happened was kind of cool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know whether, I don't know what, how to ask this question or what I what I'm curious about, but you know, there's various things, you know, that, that I would write beside his name, um, sex symbol, mm-hmm. meme king. Yeah. And then, this. and then with a question mark, prime minister with substance, you know, is, is it too early to, to sort of make any. No, I think conclusion that I mean, he, he's, he'll have been in office, um, next month for an entire year. Which Jeez, is, it's been you know, that long. yeah, October fifteenth. I mean, I think there was that there was a transition period, but really, I mean, this this fall marks a one year mark. 
Um, I mean, I don't think it's too early. I mean, it's still early into his term, but it'll also be a quarter of the way through his first mandate, right? So I think that he is a, um, I mean, his approval rating is still very high. I think he's kind of lucky in that he is um, right now a prime minister without any real formal opposition in that, even though I think Rowan Ambrose has done a great job as the interim leader of the conservatives, yeah. she's not the, the leader. She's the interim leader. That's right. And um, same with the NDP. They don't have a, a they're leader. They're getting right another leader they're, as well. So it's, it's easier to um, be in that role when you don't have people really good at, at, at being on your, on your heels. Um, and I think that the, that the honeymoon period is starting to, to wane a bit. We did a story tonight on Global oh. that was about, you know, uncovering some expenses that the, the liberals um, engaged in, some, you know, that, that has, uh, they've come to light about um, moving expenses. And there was one member of the PMO, uh, we're not sure exactly who, but one member of, of Trudeau's team who spent $126,000 moving from Toronto to Ottawa. And I don't know what, like, unless you're, you, you know, riding. House? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was, that was the joke we made. And, you know, is it, what, what is it that is costing that much? So I do think that, you know, the hangover from the, from the liberals previously, when, when um, Chrétien and, and Martin were in power back in the 90s and early 2000s, was, okay, there's this wasteful entitlement and that needs to go. Yes. Uh, and then you saw a bit of that, too, with the, with the conservatives in power. You saw the... That vote is $16 orange juice in London and, and other things that people latched onto. But I think it's early in the Trudeau uh, time in office. He, he, they should be a little more mindful of some of those things. At the same time, it's low-hanging fruit. You know, we love in the media to be able to say, oh, my God, you're spending $1,600 on a limo ride, which probably is a little excessive. Yeah. But there are probably larger issues or at least... Um, more systemic kind of problems that are that are worth paying attention to um, instead of that, oh my God, you know, because a lot of times it's, well, as we saw with the Senate scandal, it's it's, it's kind of that the hate the game, not the player mentality, that these these people are acting within the rules of the office. Sure. But then you look and you think, oh, maybe the rules need to change. Hmm. So I think that Trudeau really has had, I mean, there have certainly been some, some missteps, but I think that overall... Uh, he's, he's, you know, the, the, the headlines that he, uh, generates and the, and certainly that celebrity status that he enjoys, yeah, yeah. you know, seeing him at the UN today, shaking hands, I saw him shaking hands with Hugh McGregor and, and what's her name? Queen Reina of, of, of Jordan and all these people. He does have a certain, is that star quality, star quality that, that yeah, is able, yeah. he's able to, it's able to carry him through some of the other, um, maybe dips in, in the news mm. cycle. That, does that sort of play to what we were talking about earlier? Um, you know, going after that low-hanging fruit, sort of that clickbait sort of thing yeah. that we know people will right. have an opinion. Because you're shocked. You're like, oh, my God, why does it cost? Uh, what, what's in the, well, you know, Jane Philpott, his Minister of Health, spent a lot of money on um, memberships at first-class clubs in airports. And you think, you okay. when I fly, you know, I never get access to a first-class club, and I certainly don't pay an extra membership, nor does my company pay a couple hundred dollars a year for me to be able to sit in that lounge. And so it's an easy thing to get angry about. Yeah. But in the grand scheme of things, um, is that money, you know, going to be, uh, do you really want your minister of health sitting in, in an airport lounge with important documents, making phone calls that are of urgent national interest? 
or would you rather see that person in a uh, you know a bit more of a, of a sure. isolated area? And, yeah. and so I think we, we do sometimes get distracted yeah. by that by those stories that that have gripping headlines about dollar values, but we don't really yeah. as the as the members of the public understand the context of the issue. Um, what role have or has um, outlets like Candleland? How how does that how has mm. that impacted? what you guys cover and how you guys cover things? That, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think Canada land, like there, there weren't a lot of um, publications in Canada that held a microscope up to the media. Yeah. And I think Canada land probably uh, is a little aggressive sometimes in their, in their, the way they would, in which they go about their reporting, if yeah. you will. Um, but I also think that you need, you know, everyone needs to be held to account. Yeah. And if, and, and, and Canada land does that with the media. And they've, they've broken. I mean, listen, look at the Gian Gomeshi story. That's I right. Mean, I think, I think um, maybe this is overstating it, but Canada is sure. a better place because that story came to light. Fair enough. It showed some, it showed uh, someone who allegedly, obviously was not found criminally responsible, but was doing things that created an unsafe and uncomfortable work environment. It showed some, Failings of the CBC that needed to be uh, looked at and, and dealt with, and it, and it started a conversation about um, uh, consent and sexual assault in this country that previously wasn't really taking place. So I think Canada Land and and the work of some Toronto Star journalists in that context did a really good job. They also then I think sometimes uh, are are um, a little bit um, narrow focused in the, in the in the light they shine on media sometimes and, yeah. and are a little bit um, agenda driven for sure well I think everyone sort of has an agenda yeah, uh, yeah. I mean yeah I mean I, I think their agenda is maybe a little more personal than mm. other um, media outlets yeah and some of their stuff is very inside baseball some of their stories don't yes. get traction beyond the people who work in and live and breathe in that you know that industry and yeah. then some of their stories go um, far beyond yeah yeah there, there was one story and, and i can't remember if i i, I probably did here mm-hmm. as a result of canada land but it was the whole issue of this arms deal that they couldn't get out of so they had to do anyways an arms with deal. the what? maybe arms deal is the wrong way oh canadian the canadian the, like to the trudeau government yeah oh yeah i don't know if canada land broke that story yeah, um, they didn't break it. I right, know that, but, but they, I heard about it through right. there. Oh, did you? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a it was a deal with the Saudis. Um, yeah. That that apparent and I, you know, to be honest, I don't want to speak on it because I don't know all the details myself. But it was basically, uh, you know, we had been told as Canadian taxpayers that there we weren't going to be engaging in this deal, and it turns out we were actually selling certain um, products. Yeah. Uh, to a government that we had sort of distanced ourselves from. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Canada Land. Uh, listen, I, I think the more, the more scrutiny and the more people there are telling stories in this country, the better. Yeah. The, the more voices. Every time I hear of you know hiring and and new shows being launched at CTV or CBC or you know the BBC is coming to Canada. Um, right. In the next couple of months. Yeah. And and I think it's more competition for people like us at Global, but it's also great that the more jobs there are in this industry, the more competition. And the more news being generated, yeah, the better yeah. everybody is. How long does it take? So let's talk about some inside baseball. Yeah. For, for a huge story. So not, not reporting, well, this is what happened today or this is what is happening today. Mm-hmm. 
how how long does it take when when someone comes to you, you know, with, with a big story? Yeah. Um, to actually come to air, and I don't know if there's an example you could use. So you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, something like a Gomeshi thing. Yeah. You know, but that's that's something big. There's a lot of research that's to be done. Question. Yeah. I mean, it is so case dependent. Uh, it can take like there are a lot of stories that we have, you know, that we're sitting on bits and pieces of that you aren't able to go to air with because you don't have enough information. Uh, you haven't confirmed certain facts, or you're waiting for more details, or you need another voice, and you can sit on those for weeks or months or years in some cases. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of an example of a story that we've broken that took a lot of um, research time and, and, and build-up. Um, uh, well, you know, there's a story right now that we're working on that that's, we, we've, you know, done really well with, and, and that's hydro prices in Ontario. Yes. Okay. And I think, you know, th this is, we, we, we've sort of started getting um, dribs and drabs of, of tips from people who are rural homeowners or business owners in Ontario who are fed up with the rising price of, of hydro. And this wasn't necessarily a story we sat on for a long time, but it was a story we've covered in, in a number of different ways over a number of months. And only now are we seeing traction from change makers at Queens Park and people of influence. Because I think, you know, oftentimes uh, the work of media and the, and the change and the impact the media can have doesn't come as a result of one story. Sometimes it does, but often it's 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 a building wave of, of interest and engagement in a particular issue. And story after story after story builds that wave. And eventually you'll see change come as a result of it. And just last week, the premier and the finance minister and the energy minister here in Ontario announced that they're going to be doing a little bit, uh, maybe people would say not enough, but a little bit to, to ease the pain that hydro customers are feeling in the province. Yeah. And I think I wouldn't by no means would say exclusively that's through the work of global, but I think our our coverage of that story has really helped bring that to light from a from a really uh, you know from a mainstream media perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so it can take long you know a long time. You just you need that. Sometimes you're waiting, missing that you know final piece of the puzzle yeah. before things click and come together. I know that um, you know over the past few years, I, I don't know exactly what stories, but you know news outlets like like CNN will report on something to be first. Yeah. You know, rather than, I don't know, like wait for third confirmations or yeah. however that works. Do you guys ever, you know, debate internally? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all the time because you, you know, you might hear something or you read it on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and oftentimes, and this is, this happens, unfortunately, most often it seems like with, you know, celebrity death rumors that um, one person will put out a tweet um, and that tweet will get retweeted by a number of other news outlets. And so it looks like there are a lot of people reporting it, yeah. but the, but the facts or the initial nugget of information is still coming from just one source. Yeah. And I think, you know, a core tenant of journalism yeah. is you always have to have two completely independent, separate sources. And, um, that rule i think gets tossed away sometimes by those looking to be first yeah as opposed to being right and um and it's painful sometimes when you think oh shoot all the other new media outlets are, are reporting this or other media outlets are reporting it and we're not and we need to get it out there and you're never you know no one really remembers when you when you get it 
when you're the first to have something, but they remember if you got it wrong. Yeah. So um, it's it's difficult these days because there's so much noise, and you have to actually as a as a an actual media outlet, not just you know some of the Twitter account, but a media outlet. You have to make sure that you still play by the rules, even if those other people, the new media companies, aren't. Yeah. Have you ever reported that other people are reporting? You guys ever get into yeah, that situation? Yeah, you don't like it's not ideal, but yeah. sometimes you have to. Yeah. Um, sometimes if there is, certainly if it's an international story and we mm. don't have the boots on the ground in places that uh, other media outlets do, or um, but rarely. I mean, it, it certainly happens. Like if some sometimes um, a, a politician will will give something exclusively to one media outlet, say the Toronto Star, and so. Fair enough. And it might happen overnight. The Toronto Star goes to print in the morning with an exclusive story. And so our morning shows have to say, you know, according to reports in the Toronto Star this morning, but usually by early early in the day, we can confirm that independently and then you can take yeah. out that, that reference. But but I think that, um, you know, it's and, and there's always, you know, you're always celebrating. There, You know, there were, there were stories recently um, that were, where we were, you know, sort of quoted as saying, um, you know, global. Someone so tells global news, and that's always a small win because yeah. you like you like to be able to take take credit for being able to break a story. It's sure. always even if it means nothing to the public. It's certainly internally in our industry. Yeah, it's a bit of a you know, it's a win for you. It's guys. a win, yeah, for Small sure. It, 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 that actually reminded me of there was that story that was put together or or yeah, put together by a consortium of different media outlets worldwide yeah it was the um, panama papers panama papers yeah good yeah good memory was, yeah yeah it was um and it was led by um you know media outlets all across the kind of the world and, and i think the global mail was was a real leader in um canada yeah uh or actually no sorry the toronto star the toronto star but um yeah i mean that that's an interesting way of doing things and i think a very smart way because it's so expensive you know research and being thorough is yeah. so important, but it's also so expensive. Yeah. Because it takes, you know, human power and it takes time and energy. Um, and so I think that's a really novel way. If you if you can team up with other outlets across the across the, the, the world, and WikiLeaks is a good example of that as well. Yeah. Um, and and we've started to do that as well at Global. We partnered on on certain stories with the Toronto Star or okay. with other outlets. Yeah. Um, and and because at the end of the day, people don't really remember anymore where they see content you know if you like even when you were just saying now that story you saw in canada land you yeah you can never be sure it's hard to be sure yeah where you saw an an initial story and so i i I think that there there's great benefit in teaming up and sharing resources Mm. and and every everybody wins in that in that regard is global news going to come out with coffee service coffee service yeah coffee coffee oh like uh, the toronto star did you, you you haven't heard the Toronto Star one? No. They came, they started a coffee service. Really? I swear this. I know the Winnipeg uh, Winnipeg Free Press does. They have a cafe in their really? building. The Toronto. When did this get announced? Like this just was today? Last week. Really? This Toronto Star launches coffee subscription service. This is a week ago in Marketing Magazine. Shit, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I'm, I feel like I'm really. Uh, the Toronto Star Parent Company Star Media Group have brewed up a new subscription service. An attempt to generate huh. incremental revenue. Yeah, I don't coffee. know. I mean, that seems really Call headline coffee. Wow, so that's what I was asking. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I think I think we need to do things that that are uh, you know different, and yeah, and we, we definitely you know we have a team of people who are investing in more in, in how you how people consume content and how you can monetize different content. You know, a newsroom is 
incredibly expensive facility to run. And typically they don't make a lot of money. The print industry used to, and TV, I'm sure, and they did, but it was never bit, you know, Global was the network that had like, you know, Seinfeld and Friends and Simpsons. And those programs always made a hell of a lot more money than news. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's how you subsidize the the news industry in, yeah. in broadcast. Like Hockey Night in Canada for the CBC. Sure. Uh, exactly. And so I think that we are trying now, as, as conventional television sees revenues dipping, we need to find new ways to stand alone and be uh, a self self-sustaining entity, which is not easy to do. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to keep it for too much longer, but I wanted to sort of get your opinion on this one last thing. Mm -hmm. um, I've always pined yeah. for a Canadian John Stewart. Yeah, me too. You know? Yeah. Um, I think Samantha B's doing an awesome job of course. down there. With but her beat is the United States. And and she's Canadian. She's Canadian and her beat is down, is, yeah. is down there. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and some people you have... You should do it. You'd be good at that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, don't, I, I don't think so. Um, but I'm... Like, do... Is, yeah. is there a need for one? Yeah, I think there'd be a great... I mean, I, and, and I think a lot of media companies have talked about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is so much... I don't want to say oversaturation, but you look at the American late night market yes. and you have, you know, people who are doing very well, obviously, you know, um, John Oliver. Um, and then you have people like like... James Corden and and Jimmy Fallon and um, Jimmy Kimmel and Stephen Colbert obviously on Global yeah. every night at eleven thirty, and and um, there's a lot of competition in that market, and those shows have an audience of say you know three hundred million people in the states plus thirty million people in Canada, so you they have these budgets and these abilities to have a staff that services or That's that so true. you know that serves three hundred thirty million people. Yeah, the Canadian version. <laughs> you got 30 million people at best at the best right? yeah. and, and I so I think now not to say that you need a huge budget to do a show like that but John Oliver he puts out a, a half hour show once a week and yeah. he's only on maybe 26 weeks a year if that and he he has a staff apparently of like 70 or 80 people so Jeez. it takes good money to do good research and good work um, and there you know I think the Canadian late Mike Mark I don't know if you've had Mike Bullard on your show no, I you loved him when he, when he had a... Yeah. He'd be a great... He does a radio show now. He'd, That's he'd, right. He'd come and do this in a heartbeat. He's a yeah. good guy. Yeah, really good guy. He's, he's to, in your I phone? Sort of, he's in my phone. I All can, right, I good. <laughs> he's a great guy. So he... And, you know, he... he, he but he... What's interesting, get, get him to open up about uh, late night television in Canada, and he has a lot... I loved him when he was on TV. He was so funny. Oh, my so God. I, but I amazing. think that, you know, there's this, re, there's this belief that, oh, no, Canadians won't watch Canadian late night TV because they'd rather watch... George Clooney be interviewed than the guy from Degrassi from the 1980s, right? Which Fair is enough. sometimes in the Canadian media world yeah. where you have to settle for. You know, yeah. I, I produced morning television for a long time, and uh, and I think we put out a great product. But sometimes the the guest cycle, you're like, oh, great, we're talking to uh, you know this um, former you know 80s you know this former 80s rocker again. Like yeah. it's, yeah. it's it only it only, it only there's only so far this Canadian star system can go. Mm -hmm. And so when you build a late night show, even though I know that the John Stewart model wasn't so much around the guesses about yeah. the commentary. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I I think George Strombolopoulos did a phenomenal show. He um, did, yeah. And he was handcuffed show. a little bit on the CBC, but yeah. I think he I think watch for him the stuff that he's doing right now with YouTube partnering and there was yeah, a, there was a right. release last week about it about, yeah. about his work. Watch for that kind of model is, is you know, it's kind of an interesting It doesn't take. need to go the traditional way. I mean, I shouldn't, I think, I think it, it could and it should as well. But I also yeah. think that, that, that uh, you know, that there are some interesting other products out there that are really, um, 
you know, revolutionizing how people consume content. Awesome. Listen, I, I, I usually start off with, you know, going through, you know, someone's bio and, and, and going through that. And I That's totally boring. skip that. Don't worry but, about it. No, but let me quickly tell us, you know, what is Makai Taggart doing at Global News? Um, trying to, uh, you know, not make people cry during the day, <laughs> uh, which hasn't happened in a long time. No, I, I at Global News, I'm having a lot of fun and I'm helping, I think, uh, I'm helping a terrific group of journalists reflect back on a terrific city it's itself yeah. and also point out in, in our city and our province and our country ways that we can be better. Because mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, in, in comparison to the United States, we always say, oh, well, we're better than the States, therefore we're, we're doing great. There's, there, there's a lot of ways to improve. And we always say, you know, at Global News, we believe in a greater Toronto. And yeah. we know that Toronto is a great place to live, yeah. but it can be better. Yeah. And um, making sure that people like the mayor or city councilors or the premier don't think that they're not being watched and that the money they're spending is not being accounted for. And, you know, it's, it's a blast every day to get in in the morning and think, okay, we've got a massive online platform and, and five and a half hours of live television a day on Global. People forget, you know, because... Because we're not an all-news network, people forget that we have a three and a half hour morning show every morning. We have half right. hours at noon, a half hour at noon. We have an hour at five thirty and six o'clock, and we have a half hour at eleven. That's a lot of real estate to tell the stories of this city and of this region. And it's a, a blast to do that every day and to think, okay, how can we do this a little bit differently? Yeah. So that's that's sort of what I'm doing at Global as the news director. I, I help, um, you know, empower a team to tell the best stories and, and shed light on the most important issues that we can. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. And Thanks. for your time. I've kept you here way too late. I, no, I don't, I don't even know anymore. What time is it? It's not even that late. Well, I, I don't regret it. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Man. It was great meeting you. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Yeah, this is, this is fun.